Well, the pressure's kind of on now. I see some people that were here in the first service. Oh, you're going to take off? Good. Then I don't have to do this the same way. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> the pressure was on, you know, you get too many people to hear you the first time, and then you do it different, and they're going... And you should just know it will be slightly different. I'm not making that up in my Karen. I'm different every time I do something. Sometimes I just refuse to do them the same way because I'm just used to it. But uh, in the first service, when I came into the first service, I was really wrestling with the scripture about the five or six different ways to give it that I have up here. And then I didn't use any of them. I did a different way. And I'm all settled. That's the way I'm going to do it. I'm going to try to do it something like that this time. But uh, the reason why this does this is we're back into our Elijah text today. The reason why this one has, has really caused me to wrestle with it is that over, over the 30, 28 years, well, 30 years of me being a Christian, this scripture has hit me as one of those in in at least five different ways. If you've got a scripture that you read it every couple of years and you go, oh, that, that's kind of got me. And, and it didn't get me that way last time. Why is it getting me this way this time? And so this scripture is in this, and this, it's a bit of a parable from the Old Testament. I'm not saying that it's not true, but it's a way for us to understand what God does in, in, within his people. And And every so often, when you read Scripture, you should be cut to the quick a little bit. Now, by cut to the quick, to use a gardening term, that's what that is. The quick is the alive part in Old English sort of understanding of the plant. So you would cut it. If you were going to graft something in, you would have to cut down into the live part. So if you're cut to the quick, you're cut down to where you live. It cut through the muck through the bark and all that stuff, but straight down into the good stuff. This scripture does that. Am I, I, I'm, I'm looking at my resident horticulturist over here. Did I, did I handle that right? Okay, good. I'm so glad. I'll make a mistake somewhere today. That's not the spot. So, so as we do this, before I read the scripture, and this is a, about Naboth and his vineyard, But before we do that, I need to give you some understanding and some needed background. So I'm just going to kind of go back into understanding how the Jews or the Israelites saw themselves at this time. Now, they saw themselves as a people in a vineyard that God tended and put them in. So God's in charge of the tending of the vineyard, and they're in the vineyard. Now, how did they get there? Well, they started out as as slaves in, in Egypt, for our purposes today, which Deuteronomy 11.10 calls the vegetable garden of the world, or, the way the, or in this understanding, a garden that has to be tended by human hands regularly. So, so if you understand that, that the Pharaoh had a vegetable garden and he put people to work tending his garden. God took them out of that and they came... God's people in a vineyard that he supplied and tends. That's why in the, in the Gospels, when Jesus tells a story about a walled vineyard with some renters in it, um, one of my professors at seminary used to say, Jesus goes around telling all the right stories with all the wrong endings. 
right? They, they understand that. So when Jesus tells about this walled vineyard, that this man t- makes a vineyard and he builds a wall and plants it, and then he puts in renters, they're starting to go, but we're the children, not the renters. And then the renters turn out to be evil, and they do bad things to the owner's people when they come. And finally, after all his people are sent away, beaten, bruised, killed, and and all this, he says, well, if I send my son, surely they'll honor him. And they see the son and say, well, this is the heir. If we kill the heir, then, then the land will be ours. But they were in this walled vineyard. And that's why when Jesus tells that story, the Jews are super mad at him. Because he said, not only are you not the children of God, the definition of the children of a good child and in the ancient Israel context, is somebody that does the works of the father. Somebody that looks like their dad if you're, you're, or, you're, or their mom. If you're their child, you, you act like them, right? The apple didn't fall very far from the tree, if you will. And so when they're called the renters that treated the the owner of the vineyard's child badly, they get mad about that. But here's some of this early background stuff. So as we get into this text, the land was given to them as, a, as an enduring inheritance. And so Naboth is given this land. Well, every family had some land that was given to them. And if you sold it like you became destitute and you had to sell the land, every 50 years it was supposed to revert back to the original family. So you've got to be careful when you're buying land where you are in relation to the year of Jubilee. So if you buy it in the 49th year, you're not going to have it very long because next year it's going back. But it's the way, it's, it's, it's about God's provision and his enduring provision for the family that you would live in this vineyard. So now let's, let's go into 1 Kings 21 ish. <laughs> Bev just loved that this week. She goes, now which scripture are you going to do? I'll, I said, I'll be in 1 Kings 21-ish. That, so that's how it's in the bulletin. <laughs> now there was a man named Naboth from Jezreel who owned a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of King Ahab in Samaria. Now we've been talking about Elijah for quite some time, and Ahab is a bad dude. He, he just is not super good at what he does, or he's very good at being bad at what he does. I don't know which one it is. Anyway, one day Ahab said to Naboth, since your vineyard is so convenient to my palace, I would like to buy it and use it for a vegetable garden. Do you hear this language from Deuteronomy 11? I'm going to... Will you sell me the enduring gift of God that takes care of you and your family so I can put people to work in it? I will give you a better vineyard in exchange if you prefer or I'll pay you for it. Now, here's the thing. The provision of God, but I'll give you something better than God could give you. I just want you to sit and think about that for a second. Is there anybody on earth that can give you something better than God can give you? Well, well sometimes it feels like there might be. You know, like, like I only have a 50-inch screen, but I would like a 60-inch screen. And that would be better. 
Anyway, so here we go further. But Naboth replied, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance that is passed down from my ancestors. So Ahab went home angry and sullen because of Naboth's answer. The king went to bed with his face to the wall and refused to eat. This is a great pouting king. None of us ever pout, do we? I haven't pouted since yesterday. (laughs) What's the matter, his wife Jezebel asked. What's made you so upset you're not eating? I asked Naboth to sell me his vineyard or trade it, but he refused, Ahab told her. Are you the king of Israel or not, Jezebel demanded. Get up, eat something, and don't worry about it. I'll get you Naboth's vineyard. Now, this is one of those spots where the original language just doesn't translate very well. Some, you might say, well, it's a poor translation, but you know, languages don't always translate very well. One example of this is Greek to English doesn't always translate perfect. Do you know why? I remember when we got to participles and when I was taking Greek, and, and, you're, and suddenly the eight forms of every verb you had became 350 forms of every verb you had. And English just doesn't always have all those things. And so you have to kind of massage it into a shape for our language. Well, this is it. This is really, are you the king of Israel or not? Some translations have it. Is this the way the king of Israel acts? Or, or, or as many of the commentators say, you really are just a king of Israel, aren't you? Now, what's the story behind that? Before we go on a little bit, I would just want you to know that as they came into the land that God had provided, God was their king. You, shall have not, you won't have a king because you're going to be different. You're going to be a light to the nations. You're going to be a different kind of people than everybody around you. And, and you're going to be part of God's provision, not just for you, but God's going to provide for the world through you. But somewhere along the line, as as people who are different often want to be, they started to want to be like everybody else. And they said, give us a king, Samuel. Give us a king so we can be just like everybody else. And Samuel goes, no, God is your king. Matter of fact, um, Gideon had early said when they tried to make him king, no, God is your king, not me. God's the king. Don't make me king. We're not going to be like this. But soon God says to Samuel in, in the text earlier that uh, give him a king, Samuel. It's not you that they're rejecting. It's me. It's me they're rejecting when they ask for a king. That's what God's saying. Just I, I get it. It's not you. They don't want me to be their leader. They want to be just like everybody else. But even then, the Israelite kings were not just like everybody else. They had sort of this servant king role within their body that that they were supposed to live differently. Even David was quite a bit different, you know. But, But the kings around them, like the Pharaoh or Jezebel's dad, you know, when they want something, they just take it. You haven't met anybody in the world like that before, have you? Yeah. So you want to be just like that. that we want to be just like that. We want a king like that. And so now, now there's some stuff going on here that when Naboth says no and, and Ahab says, and he goes home, he doesn't just take it. He's aware 
And he's part, he's part of the tradition that says, this is God's provision for Naboth. I'm not supposed to take it. You really are just an, a merely, merely an Israelite king, aren't you, out of Jezebel's mouth? I'll get you Naboth's vineyard. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, sealed them with his seal, and then sent them to the elders and other leaders of the town where Naboth lived. In her letters, she commanded, call the citizens together for a time of fasting. You don't call the citizens together unless something's wrong, not for fasting. Proclaim a fast so we can figure out what's going on. Give Naboth a place of honor and then seat two scoundrels across from him who will accuse him of cursing God and the king and then take him out and stone him to death. So the elders of the, and, and the other town leaders followed the instructions Jezebel had written in the letters. They called for a fast and put Naboth to a prominent place before the people. Then two scoundrels came and sat across from him and they accused Naboth before all the people he has cursed God and the king. And so they dragged him out of the town and stoned him to death. The town leaders then sent word to Jezebel. Naboth has been stoned to death. And then Jezebel heard the news. She said to Ahab, you know the vineyard Naboth wouldn't sell to you? Well, you can have it now. He's dead. So Ahab immediately went down to the vineyard of Naboth to claim it. But the Lord said to Elijah, go down and meet the king, of, king Ahab of Israel who rules in Samaria. He will be at Naboth's vineyard in Jezreel claiming it for himself. Give him this message. This is what the Lord says. Wasn't it enough that you killed Naboth? Must you rob him too? Because you have done this, dogs will lick your blood in the very place where they lick the blood of Naboth. There's another place where the idiom the idiomatic speech, the figure of speech doesn't, doesn't translate very well. Have you ever heard, if you live by the sword, you die by the sword? That's kind of what they're saying. The way you've taken care of Naboth, that's going to happen to you. It, in the same way as Naboth. There's also some parts in there in the Israelite tradition that the dog licking of the blood would mean that you're dead or left on the ground and unhonored. Right, the way you've not done honor to Naboth. So my enemy, Ahab says to Elijah, you have found me. Yes, I have come because you have sold yourself to what is evil in the Lord's sight. I'm going to stop right there for a second, and we'll talk about this. Israel, northern Israel, Samaria, is in the process of becoming like the other nations. But the, but the other nations, Jezebel, doesn't see them in the same light as she does the others, right? She sees the weakness of the Israelite kings, the servanthood of the kings as a weakness. I want to ask you this question. Is there something in us as Christians that the people in our community see as weakness that isn't really? Because this is the point if it's weakness to honor the provision that God has given to somebody else so that their family can be provided for and you can live in your own provision and not take it from somebody else, 
Don't you want that kind of weakness in your government that doesn't just seize everything from you and just take it? That's what that was. Well, we'll just become like everybody else and then we'll get a king that does that. Well, and there's some spots in America and in North America that, that the Christian community and the non-Christian community kind of look like this, kind of like a six-fingered hand. You've got extra thumb on each side, right? That, that, that we're not super distinguishable. Now, I've told you a little bit about their story. Now, let's, let's remind you, let's call you back a little bit to your Christian story for a second. How did you know Christ? You didn't clean yourself up and become a good person and then, and then accept Christ, Christ accepted you because you were clean enough. You were just like the world, just like them now, just like them. You might actually be quite a lot like them still. You know, you still live here. You live in this community. You still live in the same culture. God didn't zap you out of the culture you were born in and, and put you here. Now, the Pancoast kids are not here. God did kind of zap them out of their culture, didn't he? And put them in a different one. But he can do it, but he doesn't always do it because he, he prefers to have the, his light to the nations where it can be seen that the change is occurring in them. Because you were just exactly like them, and now when you come to Jesus and you start to meet him, and and this isn't just a Jesus moment, um, how many of you know what the first line of the Ten Commandments is? Anybody here just spot that off? Do you know what the first line of the Ten Commandments is? Just before thou shalt not, or thou shalt have no other gods before me, all this stuff, says, I am your God and you are my people. It's a statement of relationship before rules. Before you obey, before you're you're able to obey, God claims you as his own and starts to work in you. When the Israelites first got the Ten Commandments, they essentially said this at the thing, We don't know how to live right. If you'll tell us how to live, then we'll do that and we'll be your people. That's the the context of 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 the Ten Commandments. Now, we live in a world where lots of churches just love the Ten Commandments as a checkbox, and maybe they've got 35 commandments. I don't know. Maybe, they're, maybe they don't. I've, I've run into one. I've seen one where it still has the ruler in the door jam so that they can measure women's skirts to make sure they're the right length. That seems like it's not really on the list, but maybe it could be added somewhere, right? Usually like a little sticky note like soon. But God didn't do that. The reason why checklists are not how God interacts with his people per se is because it's about relationship first and his growing presence in your heart. Or if we think about it, this in a New Testament language, the meeting of Jesus and the gospelization of your heart where the gospel begins to take root in you and grow and the kingdom of God starts to become ripe in you. But you don't start that way. Your life is not a self-help program where you just pull yourself up by those bootstraps. That doesn't work. Although the world is fast approaching thinking that's the only way to go. 
There is no help but what you give yourself. Isn't that right? How many, what's the size of the self-help section in the bookstore now? It's sort of like a New Year's resolution. But when Jesus comes and you meet him and the gospel starts to invade or gets planted in your life, or if you want to use this language, maybe, maybe the, you could read the, King, the Sermon on the Mount and understand that as, as a gospel blood transfusion for your life. One very unlikely source for this is John Calvin. Calvin wrote that when you understand the Ten Commandments as a relationship thing, that, that you then have no other gods before him, that when you have only him in front of you and he's in front of you, then you no longer have to steal your neighbor's stuff and you don't have to lie to get things and you don't have to kill them and you don't have to lust after their spouse and you don't have to bear false witness. And you don't have, you're not going to have to struggle to keep the Sabbath holy because you're going to keep the whole thing holy. Because your present, your relationship with God is so foundational in this thing. But you're not, you're not the king of the people of Israelites trying to steal Naboth's vineyard. And then when he gets killed, taking advantage of it. There's more to that story, and we're going to get to that in just a second. But I want to make sure that you hear the question here is, how are we different from the world? And is what they perceive strength or weakness in us? Because if they perceive weakness, but it's not actually weakness, maybe it's time for us to understand that we shouldn't trade in our weaknesses to look like strengths and be just like the world. 2 Corinthians 10, 12.10. Lloyd looked up the address for me earlier, so I still remember it. <laughs> right? Um, when I am weak, you are strong. In my weakness, your strength is made available and visible. Our weakness is where he is strong. Have you ever thought about that, that, that maybe it's not just where the things that I don't do very well, he does those really well, and so suddenly I'm better equipped than I used to be, but maybe in the spot where I'm broken, which is always about relationships and breaking relationships with people because I get mad at them and I pout and I do all this stuff, and then I take their stuff and I, I sit over there and I, I realize that the property line's right here, but if I put my fence post over two more inches and I get two more inches a yard and suddenly I have some of their stuff and it's mine now. And if we leave it for 15 years, then the law actually says it's mine because it's been forfeited by eminent domain. No, our weakness is, is that we follow a Lord that actually thinks that we should honor his provision in somebody else's life as theirs and shouldn't ask them to cough it up so that we could have more. That we are that recognized that, that he didn't make us clean ourselves up before he started to transform us. 
because all that self-cleaning stuff doesn't work. It just brings extra chemicals into our lives. For me, that's Mountain Dew. <laughs> just need my, need my coolant or antifreeze. But as we look at the world and, we, and, and God doesn't zap us out of our culture and he does this, I want you to remember that these texts, they ask important questions and, and push buttons in our lives and cause us to start to think about who we are and what we are. And the essential nature of what Christians or the people of God is, is a people that honor and live in relationship with him, even when it looks like weakness to the rest of the community. I want to I I just throw one more little thing in here about this God that we serve. This is at the end of the text here. When Ahab, remember Ahab, who thought it was a little thing to walk in the sins of the worst king that ever lived, heard this message from Elijah. He tore his clothing, dressed in burlap and fasted, even slept in the burlap and went about in deep mourning. And then another message from the Lord came to Elijah and said, Do you see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has done this, I will not do what I promised to do during his lifetime, but wait for later. There is mercy in the Lord for those of us who think of ourselves as maybe the worst that ever was, that ever can be, any of that stuff. You know, Paul, as, as Paul writes letters and when he gets later into the letters, he says, well, I'm really the least of the apostles and pretty soon he's, 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 he's nobody was a worse sinner than he's the chief of all sinners. As he gets closer to God and this sort of starts to recognize the holiness and, and his inability to hold the relationships without God's work in him and all this stuff, you start to say, have you ever thought to yourself, I am just not very good at this. Everywhere I go, I just kind of blow what it means to be a Christian everywhere I go. Has that thought ever entered into your head? Here's Ahab, who actually didn't really want to be a good follower of the Lord in a lot of ways. I don't know what... The, the commentaries vary on that. Sometimes he's just a wishy-washy guy that does what everybody around him says to do. But when it's spoken to him about what's happened and he breaks himself, for a moment, I want you to hear the mercy of the Lord even on the worst of sinners. And as you think you might be that person just want you to know, you probably didn't within the last week have your neighbor killed and take their property. Probably not. Just saying. But if you had, and you should hear the word of the Lord come to you and say, you, you there is mercy for you. But if there's mercy for that person, and, and I know that, that we love law and order really well, but you know, when it's aimed at somebody else. And we love mercy when it's aimed at, when something needs to be aimed at us. I want you to hear this Lord who continues to be near, nearby and available 
for the worst of us. And maybe not just the worst of us, but the worst in each and every one of us. And he's there to start making the inflow, the blood transfusion of his kingdom into it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much. Actually, I was just thinking there that I just say Lord Jesus all the time, and right now what I really want to say is, hey, Daddy, it's us. Father, we need your presence. We need to wrestle with what this means. Help us understand that in you is mercy and grace and forgiveness, but also a call to a new life, a different way, that we might be the light to the nations. Thank you, Father. Amen.